yeah, then I decided I wanted to go to Bath University. Um, the GB Beach program was based there at the time, so that's why I chose to go there um, and just sort of took it a bit more seriously each each year by year. Um, started playing on the national tour. Um, and then when I graduated, I decided to move to Bournemouth and focus on going full time. Um, and obviously going full time sort of really allowed me to see um, the potential possibilities of, you know, progression playing a lot more on the domestic tour, winning quite a lot of events, deciding to try and take it international. Played a few, what we call NEVSAs, so it's like Northern European zonals. Mm-hmm. Um, and just getting a little taste of that international competition and, you know, being quite surprised that we were able to compete. I didn't, wasn't sure sort of the disparity of level. Um, so yeah, we just took it more and more seriously. And we started competing on the world tour about four years ago. Um, which is what qualifies you for the Olympics and Commonwealths and different things. So, That was Jess Grimson. I am Curtis Mansfield. And this is the Hips and Dips podcast. This week's guest is Jess Grimson a beach volleyball player who was part of the England junior setup from the age of 14, shortly after which he had to give up a rather promising career in football, a four times national champion with over 30 domestic titles, and success also came on a world stage with a world tour bronze and several top 10 finishes on the FIVB world tour. A highlight may have come in 2018 when Jess and her then teammate Vicky Palmer achieved a fifth-place finish at the Commonwealth Games over on the Gold Coast. Jess isn't just a top athlete, but she's also excelled in the academic arena, working as a clinical lead at a sports academy for three years after attending Chichester College and then the University of Bath. A woman with great experience who can offer a lot of insights not only into volleyball, but sports on the whole, Make sure you follow my Instagram page, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z for more details on not only Jess, but all of my upcoming and past guests. Now, it's time to go and get Jess on the podcast. Okay, Jess, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. It's uh, getting busier. But one thing I've noticed is the the lights coming back in the evenings. We've had some really dark, dark weeks, um, <laughs> both mentally and in terms of light. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. we are now starting to get. It's still dark, and I leave work, but it's less dark, which is a which is a which is a nice thing. I'll take that. That is a bonus. Definitely, yeah. Um, okay, so this gets straight into things, really. So every week we start with this very similar opening. When I'm quite interested to find out how this whole COVID pandemic has been for the guests' health. And we always look at health in terms of physical, mental, and social well-being. So really broad question, how has this year been for you? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think if you look at the grand scheme of things, I am doing good. Um, I think, you know, it's easy to compare, but to keep it relative, um, there's people a lot worse off. Um, I've managed to have work, I've managed to see friends, um, obviously missed family, that's been the biggest thing I've probably found difficult um, physically, 
I'm very fortunate where I work, I have access to equipment. So from a point of view of training and keeping healthy, which is a massive part of my physical and mental health, um, I've been very fortunate and been able to keep that up pretty much the whole way through, really. Um, obviously, the very, very first lockdown, um, I was furloughed off work and, you know, it's very easy. I can see it. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I've never suffered with any form of mental health, but you had a few days where I was just like, what's the point in getting out of bed? There is just no reason. Um, and I snapped out of it pretty quickly, but I just sort of stepped back and went, well, I can see how easy that spiral is for some people if they don't have either a support support system or, you know, their own sort of mental strength to be able to pull themselves out of it. And it made me really sort of think, you know, those people got it really, really tough. Um, so I'm pretty grateful for sort of the position I'm in and how I've handled this whole thing, really. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a really strange year, of course. Um, that's an understatement. Um, but yeah. we're getting towards now about a year since that first lockdown started. And someone sent me, my cousin sent me a photo the other day of me with my, I don't, we haven't quite worked out what the title is. My cousin's daughter, which I think makes them a second cousin. Second cousin, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's what I um, but we have quite a close family so it's almost like having a little a little niece and she was born just over a year ago so mm. I held her for the first time a year ago yesterday um, so, this, so that photo was a year ago and then you look at the child now and all the things that have happened between that photo being taken and now so you've had like three lockdowns mm. you've had um so in my professional life, so many changes in my sporting life, so many changes, one season just about finished, another season started, despite having like months and months of delays. Um, so many events have happened in that year that it's actually only now when you take stock on it and really realize how much happened um, in a good way, in a bad way. But I think at the time, it's been a bit of a blur, but when you look back on it, it has been a lot has happened yes, in a year. Yes, it definitely has been a lot. I think that's really kind of one thing that I sort of push this this whole lockdown is to everyone I know really is the value of time and it's very easy to sort of let it just slip by and go oh, you know it's another month or it's only another week it's only another four weeks but there's a lot of hours a lot of minutes in a day and you can do a lot if you want to and as you've just said a lot can happen and it's not until you really sort of look at what's gone on in that year um it feels like forever ago but it's you know it's only 12 months within the last 12 months these things have, have sort of been happening so it is it's yeah it's been crazy crazy yeah yeah and I had a chat the other day with a, with a junior sports team in the local area and um, I was saying the importance of this year to focus on short-term goals which is probably something that's been quite relevant to you and your training as well but it's been a terrible year for long-term goals so at the top level your long-term goal might be olympics or winning a medal in this competition or whatever it may be at the lower level it might be just competing in this event or getting this promotion or whatever it is but having those long-term goals this year have been really hard because nothing's gone to plan and that's been outside of your control however short-term goals you can really achieve a lot so that could be i want to knock another minute off my 10k pb or i want to swim fast or run fast so i want to get stronger I want to get smarter I want to learn I want to read more books whatever those short-term goals are it's a great time to have them because you've got more time to do it 
so yeah, you can really true. focus on having those short short term goals and then hopefully getting the mental benefits of having those goals achieved yeah well yeah because i think it offers you accountability to yourself whether whatever it is you're setting in it like you say it can be something as simple as knocking time off or reading books or engaging more with you know whatever it is that you feel like you've lacked but I think a lot of people are still furloughed and have that time and I think it's very easy to just say oh it's lockdown I'm going to sit on the sofa and watch Netflix and eat chocolate which you know if that's what you want to do that's okay um but I think you know using this time productively and you know a lot of people are are actually doing that whether it be getting active or studying or learning and um just finding that growth um I think been really important and I don't know how many people have done it and I think quite a few might have and I just hope it sort of carries on I think that's my biggest concern going forward is quite a lot of people have developed these healthy habits now not just physically not just eating um but how will it continue how how many people will actually carry on these these things that they've picked up in the past sort of 12 months yeah I had that discussion yesterday with a friend actually and I was saying yeah how quickly will people resort back to their old ways and everyone you speak to says oh no you know I'm a change change person um I'm born again or whatever it is but in reality I know for myself between lockdowns two and lockdowns three how quickly in those couple of months even though we weren't even out of restrictions I became a little bit complacent again with the gym um I was still going all the time but I wasn't necessarily relishing it as much I maybe took going to the pub, even if it was just for a meal, a little bit um, as a given almost again. And you kind of very quickly forgot how much, all those things you said for so long. I want to spend more family time. I want to make more time for friends. I want to make more time for work, whatever it is. And suddenly you forget it almost straight away. So interesting to see how many people resort back to exactly as they were 12 months ago when yeah, that option so, comes. Yeah we're probably going to be disappointed with with the outcome of that one I think I think we may be but we'll stay optimistic um and from from a purely physical point of view um has your has your fitness and probably more importantly sport specific fitness suffered this year or have you managed to gain some fitness um I think a bit of both I think um obviously not having access so very very first lockdown we weren't allowed to train um I think it was for about two and a half months um the council put restrictions on the courts all the courts got taken down um so they made sure that we didn't kind of have access to anything um and obviously that forces you to get resourceful um I'm very much not a fan of home workouts um so thankfully like I said I'm very lucky where I work um I have access to an outdoor area which has got a rig um you know pull-up bars TRX punch bag that sort of thing and then inside um we have vibration plates a few different bits not not loads but obviously significantly more than most um and I'm a bit of a, a fitness freak anyway so I was sort of training twice a day making sure I was doing two different things a day um and I even started running and I absolutely hate running um and it took two days to cause a foot issue um <laughs> but I did stick with it for a little while just because I felt like it was offering me something a bit different um and you know running can be quite time consuming so it kind of filled my day a little bit um when I was furloughed uh, it was very difficult to find things to sort of fill the time 
um so that was a big thing yeah I started doing different things and playing around with stuff in the garden going to the local fields and just kicking a ball around and just trying to find different ways to um satisfy my need to sort of exercise yeah and some some of those back to basic things are actually really underrated I think in normal life so I go into running um quite a lot which is basically as basic as, as basic as you can get really sport wise um doing those basic calisthenics finding like an outdoor pull-up bar is great mm. um, and I just really enjoyed like sometimes taking a rugby ball down the park like you said and just kicking it around or um just or like going for hikes these really basic activities and sometimes in pre pre-covid everything had to be a really complicated workout you had to have like tire slams you had to have yeah. random mallets in the gym and sledgehammers and yeah um all these really complicated pieces of equipment and actually you can do a lot and you can you can enjoy a lot of very basic sport and very basic yeah. exercises which is something we've learned from and again maybe people will embrace that more going forward maybe they won't we'll wait and we'll wait and see um okay yeah. so at this stage we always have a little ice breaking quiz uh just to get things going and <laughs> this week i'll be honest with you i really struggled so i first of all i was going down the volleyball route. Um, if this interview happened to fall on Valentine's Day, I was thinking of doing a game called Love at First Spike, which is uh, a, okay. a great volleyball pun for anyone yes. who's volleyball fans listening. Um, <laughs> but that was going to be very good. I'm trying to think of something to do with sand and beaches. Um, I was thinking of maybe combining a Winston Churchill quote in, but that didn't work very well. Uh, so in the end, I have gone for a game called uh Grimson's fairy tales uh named after the brothers Grimm who uh of course <laughs> were German uh storytellers and story gatherers so this is what I've done I have taken 10 German trans 10 English translation from German fairy tale titles yeah some of which are real stories written by or collected by brothers Grimm and the rest are ones I've made up. And all you have to do is tell me if you reckon it's a true story or one I've made up. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Good. Right. Let's go. Uh, first of all, we have, don't forget, these are all English translations from German <laughs> things. So they don't make a lot of sense. The first yeah. one is cat and mouse in partnership. <laughs> true. That is true. That is Tom true. Must have inspired them, yeah. Um, number two, uh, the wolf and the seven young kids. That sounds like a story I do not want to read. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go false on that one. Yeah, uh, that's true. That is true. It's wildly inappropriate. Um, doesn't specify if kids are children or little goats. Ah, um, uh, okay. It could well be. It could be either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we never know. Uh, next up, we have two brothers, a sister, and a friend. Uh, true. That's false. What? That's that sounds the most tame. That sounds the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, there is one called Three Brothers, and there's also one called Two Brothers. I'm not sure if they're related. Uh, and there is one called a brother and a sister. Again, I'm not sure if any of those stories are related. Uh, next up, we have 
The Three Little Men in the Woods. <laughs> I'm going to go true. <laughs> that is true. That is yes. true. Uh, next up, we have The Straw, The Coal and The Bean. I mean, that sounds so ridiculous that it could be true. That is true. That is true. That's a classic example of that German sense of humour. Uh, <laughs> next up, we have uh, the boy, the candlestick, and the study. False. That is false. Doesn't make any sense. No. Uh, you had next... me until the study. <laughs> the study, yeah. Um, I think I went down the Cluedo route for that one. Uh, next up, we have Gossip Wolf and the Fox. False. That's true. That's oh, true. Gossip. I think that might have inspired Sex in the City. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, next up, we have uh, the mouse, the bird, and the sausage. Folks, I reckon you added sausage on the end for no reason. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> that is a stereotypical German story, and it is right true. Yeah, uh, I suppose. Uh, next up, the huntsman and the pea. False. That is false. Uh, and then finally, we have <laughs> the wonderfully titled Godfather Death. Definitely true. That is true. That's a lovely <laughs> children's story, I'm sure. Uh, okay, so I think that was seven, seven out of ten. Very good. It's a good start. Uh, I think that puts you high up the leaderboard if there was one, which there isn't, because I always forget to write down the scores. Um, so thanks for playing. That was Grimson's Fairy Tales. I was waiting for a different play on words, like I always get Grim Reaper or. Yeah, that was an option. I was going to do something to do with just it being grim. <laughs> it's like really grim, horrible things. But yeah, um, I've had it all, don't worry. But I didn't, so I went, I went left field. Right, anyway, cracking on with the, uh, the serious interview at hand. Um, of course, you've had success in beach volleyball, but how did you first get involved? Uh, so I actually first started off playing indoor volleyball. Um, I grew up in Worthing and went to Darrington High School. Um, at the time, I was kind of not necessarily very academic, but very athletic. So pretty much played every every sport, was captain of every team, played football. So I actually played for Sussex and Brighton. Um, so I was quite good at football when I was younger. Um, so I just happened to be in one of the lessons and my PE teacher said, pulled me aside and said, oh, have you ever tried volleyball? Um, and obviously I'd never heard of it. Um, a sport where you use your hands and not your feet playing a sport where you use your feet and not your hands was quite a, a difficult thing for me to get my head around um, and actually found out later on that my teacher actually used to play for England um, her name was Frida Bussey so she's actually the one that got me into volleyball um, I went to a couple of um, after school classes absolutely hated it um, it's one of the only sports actually probably the only sport that I couldn't play um, and that's not from a point of me trying to sound arrogant at being good at the sport, but mm. I think it's more of a testament to how difficult volleyball actually is as a sport. Um, and because just my general nature, I kind of went to every possible lesson class I could because I wanted to get better. 
um, and then started to really enjoy it. Um, played for one of the local teams, used to travel up to Ashcombe, played like inter-regionals, southeast, and then got selected for the England juniors about 14, 15. Um, and then <clears throat> I started getting invited to all the camps. And obviously they, they're all weekend. You'd have to stay all weekend and do like six sessions over two days. And it would always clash with my football. Um, yeah. So it was very much a decision of which one. Um, and, you know, at 15, 16, you hear the word England and, you know, it wasn't really a choice. I felt like the choice was sort of made for me. Um, in hindsight, I probably actually was playing a higher level of football than the volleyball. Um, but, um, you know, looking back, you know, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't have um, got into volleyball. So I've got a lot to um, thank Frida for. And then... Um... So that's how you got involved in volleyball, but you've had a lot of success since. So what's been those sort of highlights of that journey? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so I um, I currently live in Bournemouth and I used, as I say, I grew up in Worthing. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been to Worthing, but the beach is Pebbles. Uh, I haven't, um, but um, I think I've seen pictures. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, but um, there's, there's Pebbles kind of the whole way through, even like Brighton way. Um, so we had a few bits where we used to train at Brighton. There's a centre called Yellow Wave. And okay. they used to let us train there. Um, but ma- mostly all of the junior competitions were held in Bournemouth and Sandbanks. So as a, as a school and as a club, we used to travel down to Sandbanks every, you know, a couple of times a year and just play. And obviously going from Pebbles to Sandbanks, you know, Sandbanks is, is probably one of the nicest beaches around. Well, definitely the nicest beach in the UK. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. You know, you could throw yourself around. It didn't hurt. It was fun. Um, you were in the sun. Um, so I just I kind of fell in love with it there um, and it wasn't really until um, I got a bit further with the England juniors I was like actually I think I could probably do something with this um, and started training more got selected for World of 21 so I played with my best friend Susan um, played two consecutive years of World of 21s um, and then sort of thought I really want to take this further I mean we weren't very good uh, we got absolutely battered by every single team there um, and actually, if you look at the teams that were there now, they're some of the teams now are, you know, top 10 in the world that are competing now. So to put it a little bit into perspective. Um, yeah, and then I decided I wanted to go to Bath University. Um, the GB Beach program was based there at the time. So that's why I chose to go there um, and just sort of took it a bit more seriously each each year by year and started playing on the national tour. Um, and then when I graduated, I decided to move to Bournemouth and focus on going full-time um, and obviously going full-time sort of really allowed me to see um, the potential possibilities of you know progression and playing a lot more on the domestic tour winning quite a lot of events deciding to try and take it international played a few what we call nevses so it's like northern european zonals mm-hmm. um, and just getting a little taste of that international competition and you know being quite surprised that we were able to compete I wasn't sure sort of the disparity of level. Um, so yeah, we just took it more and more seriously and we started competing on the world tour about four years ago, um, which is what qualifies you for the Olympics and Commonwealths and different things. So um, we just sort of tried to put ourselves out there and see where we were at in comparison to the rest of the world. Um, and it just sort of took off from there really, like the hunger for it, the love of the sport, the love of the, environment that comes with the sport you know you're traveling the world going to these amazing countries you know you're just standing on a beach looking around and this is what you're you're doing as you know a career 
um it's incredible really so it just sort of every single conversation just made me want it more yeah it's one of those sports where you're you're sort of guaranteed the weather at least you're going to the nice places um as someone who plays or played a lot of rugby you always played a lot of football in the past you tend to play more in the winter you find yourself on boggy ground wherever you go but yeah to do a sport where you follow the sun must be amazing um it's, it's great to hear you're a fellow bath grad um so i spent many happy years there myself and i know the beach volleyball area you're talking about because it's right next to the hockey pitches yes. and my overriding memories of the beach volleyball place because i did play there a few times is it's got an annoying fence around the court um <laughs> like about like a six foot i think it was like a six foot fence mm. um and it was just too close to the court to mean the ball very often would end up outside of that perimeter, especially when you were playing with a bunch of rugby players who had very poor coordination, but a lot of strength. So um, those spikes didn't go down, they went up and went about <laughs> 20, 30 metres. <laughs> so it would just be like the game, every two or three points, the game would be paused. So someone had to run, climb over a fence, run into like a car park to find the ball bring it back um all the while being barefoot uh because you play on the sand so that was my overriding memories of that but i could certainly see how if you did it properly it'd be very enjoyable for shoots yeah, <laughs> um but yeah so you obviously you had probably i'd say from my perspective probably your biggest biggest success would be going to the commonwealths in 2018 mm -hmm. uh would you concur with that oh yeah absolutely um i think you know, it's been, it's actually really interesting because be before the Commonwealth, we did a prep camp in LA and we trained with a lot of American national team players in a few other countries, but um, they'd be like, oh, so, you know, what are you training for? Like, oh, Commonwealth Games, you know, for us, it's huge, second biggest multi-sport event in the world. And they're like, oh, cool, what, what is that? And you're like, they, they had no idea, like, what it was, they'd never even heard of it. Um, so for us, that was a bit of an eye-opener, obviously, you know, they don't compete, so, I mean, it's America, they you know, it doesn't happen if they're not in it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for us as a, as, a, as a country, as a very small country, especially with beach volleyball, you know, it's not a, it's not a funded sport. It's not a big sport here. It's not very well recognized. So for us to actually qualify in our own right, because there was a few routes for qualification we actually had. So one route, um, you could qualify on the world tour. So you had to finish within the top four of the Commonwealth world rankings. Um, and the second, um, route through well really was to get a wild card or get some sort of selection that way um, but we were very certain that we wanted to sort of earn our place um, yeah. so we went out I think that year we actually competed in like 13 14 different countries um, China Korea you know Switzerland lots of different countries um, to get the results and the points we needed and we finished in the top four um and actually the story of us actually finding out was we were in china so we've flown to china which um is not my my favorite place um and we were just in bed watching a film and um we basically needed to make it into the main draw and that would guarantee qualification for us yeah and um, we were in the qualification currently so we were like getting ready to play the games the next day and it's a website and you can go on and you can check the seedings you check the games and we didn't know, but someone had pulled out. So we were kind of looking at a thing and couldn't find our names. And we'd gone, oh my God, what's going on? Like we're not in the draw. And then we just what happened to click onto the main draw uh, teams and we'd been pushed through to the main draw. So we were like number one in qualification. 
a team pulled out of main draw, so then we moved up. Right. So we're both sat there in bed, like, you know, nine o'clock in the hotel room in China going, no, 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 it can't be. No, there's something not right. And we're going, no, this, you know, it didn't really sink in. And we pretty much didn't sleep the whole night. We were watching films. We were trying to distract ourselves, ringing, texting people, trying to find out, can someone confirm this? Um, although we pretty much know in the back of our heads that we were, you know, we were sure. Um, but until someone said, yes, 100%, then we didn't obviously want to get ourselves excited. So we turned up the next morning and saw the, the technical director and just asked, he's like, yeah, you, yeah England, yeah, you've moved up into the main draw, that guarantees X amount of points. Um, so actually just going to that event alone meant that we qualified. So it was, it was quite a nice feeling to be able to play free because we were traveling there with quite high pressure um, that we were putting on ourselves for, you know, we needed to perform to get those points. Yeah. Um, so qualifying in our own right, number one, was, was huge for us and huge for England generally. Um, and then, yeah, going out there, obviously, I mean, every athlete's dream is to compete at a major games. Um, and I think, you know, if I'm being realistic, the Olympics isn't a, an achievable goal for us purely on a basis of you're in a country where there's no funding. We both work to fund playing. So that sort of environment doesn't facilitate that sort of level of performance anyway. Yeah. Um, the Commonwealth is, is a much more realistic goal, although we did have to work to get there, but it was just an amazing, it was, I can't really even put into words what it was like. Um, it was so surreal being surrounded by all those elite athletes and the countries and the way we were treated and it was everything you sort of would dream of. Um, and again, you know, just kind of further fueled the hunger to do more and, you know, what else is next and, um, yeah, it's definitely a highlight. I'm not fully satisfied the, with the result. I can't really watch the game back still, even now. Um, I'm not happy with what how it finished. Um, but I don't think you know you wouldn't be an athlete if you if you were satisfied. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah. it's funny. I was just thinking now, but I don't know. I, I love the Commonwealth Games. I remember the first one that really caught my eye was 2006 in Melbourne. Um, I remember that being. I think with the time difference, like waking up in the morning and seeing the swimming. And I think you had Ian Thorpe and lots of big Australian swimmers involved. Um, and the cycling I missed it out as well. I really remember that being a really good spectacle. Uh, and then it's and then obviously you've been to the Gold Coast. So if you want to go and do beach sports, there's probably not many better places in the world than going to Australia, play on the beach, have all the Commonwealth nations. And then I just realized obviously you're targeting the next Commonwealth Games, which is in Birmingham. So when you, uh, when you think of great places in the world to play a beach sport, I can't imagine many places worse than Birmingham. Um, well, it's interesting you say that because actually for, for Australia, beach volleyball is the first time it's ever been in. Okay. So Australia are like second in the world. They're like one of the best teams in the world. Um, so obviously they really pushed to get it put in and obviously you know we did pretty well on the whole we came fifth the boys came fourth but realistically you know with a bit more prep I think both of us guaranteed realistically should have got bronze um, and then going into Birmingham obviously we're thinking great like a home game this is incredible and then they announced the sports and beach volleyball is not in it ah oh. So we're like, we've just done everything, you know, all this prep and, you know, really tried to promote the sport and it's a real opportunity to promote a minority sport. And then the announcement came out and it was just like heartbreaking. Um, you know, then you think, well, what's the point now? Like, 
what's the big long-term goal there isn't one so why you know why are we carrying on when you know you have to work and you're putting so much into it it's not like we're being paid to do this um but we were assured that you know the right procedures were going in and people were petitioning and they put in the request and it basically went through like a long process and we found out that they'd reviewed it and reviewed it and reviewed it and it you know we'd been um shortlisted amongst other sports and then we got asked to go up to Birmingham and go to Edge Baston Mm-hmm. Um, the cricket ground um, for an announcement and obviously we knew what the announcement was but we had to just go up there anyway and be sort of on I think I was on I don't know if it was Sky or ITV or BBC News um, when they announced that you know beach volleyball had been officially put in along with like T20 cricket and a few other of the para sports um, so again it was just it was just great for us because it's just a chance for us to showcase it and Yes, Birmingham isn't necessarily somewhere you'd associate with beach volleyball, but neither was Horse Guards Parade. And it was the second most sold ticket at the Olympics. So I think we've got a real opportunity to showcase the sport. And having seen how hard Team England are working, um, I know they're going to make a spectacle of it. Um, And I just really hope, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're, you know, England as a country, we we get behind our, our sports and our athletes. So I think it will be great. Um, I've just got to make sure that it's me that's there. Yeah, no, it's there definitely. Yeah, no, I think um, I'm really glad you said in the end that it is back in because that would be a real clanger if I just dropped <laughs> if I just said that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sure after all you've been through, if if the beach volleyball is in a little car park on the outside of Birmingham, you'll be happy just to be there. Oh, so, yeah. um, of course, that, that that will be fantastic. And you're right, people get behind it and. The, the London, I was going to mention actually, London 2012 was a real, um, it's, it's a tricky one. It's always one of those ones when sometimes you have to put it down to um, the, the nation's inability to maintain a sport. So that everyone gets excited every four years, but to actually um, grow that sport, maybe partly it's people's fault. But on the other hand, sometimes you have to go, did the sport do enough to capitalise on that momentum? And you've seen like um, four years ago in Rio, like hockey had a great year with the women's hockey and, you know, did England hockey do enough to promote hockey and get enough? So I think overall, I think less people play hockey now than they did before the Olympics, which is the wrong way to do things. And I think cycling... Ben, cycling's done really well so as as the team's been successful at the olympics cycling have really benefited and they've invested a lot of money in promoting more people to get into cycling and so on and other sports have but some sports you always feel handed that opportunity and you have a great year it's like taekwondo was one taekwondo had an incredible 2016 games and you always felt like there was a real hunger for that sport maybe to get bigger but it just never it never did but we are going to talk a little bit more about um, the aesthetics of beach volleyball later on um, and kind of how the sport can grow. But I think it's important we we at least cover what's the main scope of this interview, which is always about injuries. So what kind of injuries do beach volleyball players pick up and what type of injuries have you specifically had in your career? Um, so beach volleyball, I mean, beach volleyball and indoors is quite similar in the sense of injuries, I'd say. So ankles is number one, I think, because, you know, the the vulnerability of landing funny, especially with indoor, you've got six players. With beach, you've got the instability of the sand. So you're never landing on the same surface. Um, so you're always at sort of risk there. 
Um, and then you get a lot of repetitive use, so a lot of knee and shoulder injuries. So typically tendinopathies. Um, it's like a patella tendinopathy and just a general shoulder tendinopathy, but you've got such an overuse and so much force going through both of them um, constantly. You know, you might, even in a training session, you might jump 300 times. Um, you know, if you've got someone just averagely to jump 300 times, you're going to pretty much guarantee they're going to have sore knees. Yeah. Um, so that's probably less so in beach, interestingly, because obviously the sand, you've got a softer surface, so you don't quite get the impact as indoor. Um, and then I'd probably say finally is fingers, um, you know, the, the speed and power that some of these players are hitting at um, when you're blocking. So a lot of blockers specifically um, will get caught a finger and, you know, a day to find a volleyball player that's not had several broken fingers. Mm. Um, so I think they're the biggest sort of risks. Um, me specifically, I don't think you've got enough time <laughs> on this <laughs> podcast to cover that. Um, I have been constantly injured probably from about the age of 11 and um, I think it's just one of those things I've accepted now that it's just my genetics I think I'm just quite prone hmm. um, I consider myself athletically and as a job I'm quite diligent with my recovery and looking after myself I stretch I roll I do all the things you know that I would tell people that came to see me in the clinic um, but yet yeah, I can catch a ball and dislocate a finger. I can jump and I sprain my ankle. So I've pretty much injured everything. I think really I've continued shoulder issues. I had surgery uh, about six years ago on my shoulder um, dislocated broken fingers. Um, I fractured my hip bone. I've had several tendinopathies, ankle sprains, dislodged rib, um, pretty much <laughs> everything really but it's one of those things that I seem to be firefighting and again quite lucky where I work that um, I have access to a lot of equipment and access to some very very good physios um, so whether it's something I can treat myself I, I tend to try and do that and if it's not something I will see one of my colleagues um, so to be fair actually this lockdown has sort of helped me a little bit because my hands are a bit better than normal. I've had tendinopathy in both of my thumbs and that sort of settled a little bit. And then I'd probably say the biggest thing is my shoulder. I'm continually battling my shoulder. It is much better from the surgery. I'd probably say I'm at least 50% better than what I was. Um, I was in a pretty bad place with, you know, taking certain medications and just playing, knowing that the next day I couldn't move my arm. Um, yeah. but that was what I was willing to do to just get through whatever I needed to do to get through it really um, yeah and I think there's probably some parallels that can be drawn between your shoulder and my hip so um, a similar kind of injury like a long-term issue which I think I think in many ways are much worse than the short-term stuff which probably makes a lot of sense but what I mean by that is you can play on with those injuries so with your shoulder and my hip we can both play on um knowing full well it's not good for you and it probably makes you feel worse in the long term and you're going to get that pain the next day that like I can't walk you can't move your shoulder sort of similar similar things but it's worse because well in my case you have good days and bad days so you have a good day and you get lots of optimism and you think oh I feel great I'm running great I feel fast I feel agile and then another day you have a bad day and you feel in a lot of pain and it's very frustrating because in my case, I'm talking about amateur events. I'm thinking, oh, I want to do a triathlon. I want to run a marathon or I want to do this or do an Ironman. But 
and then you, those goals keep getting shifted because you're getting injuries again or the injuries getting worse or it's inflamed. You can you never know. Say I, I'm supposed to do a triathlon in uh, August this year. I don't know if August is going to be a good month or a bad month for my hip. Um, yeah. and, and for you, it's even worse because of your events are um, elite level sports. So it's really frustrating having those long-term niggles. I think it's almost yeah. worse than the actual, what people probably perceive to be the bigger injuries. Yeah, it is really tough, I think, because, like I say, even, you know, we get people, come, like, for example, someone come to the clinic with a shoulder tendinopathy, and, you know, within sort of six, eight, ten weeks, you can get them to a pretty good space. You know, I'm talking, I had my first shoulder issue when I was about 15, and I'm 30 next month, so this has been a 15-year ongoing issue um, where, you know, I was advised to have injections, but I didn't want to go that route. Was surgery the right route? I don't know. I guess I am better than I was, but the same as you, like I have, you know, we had a, a small domestic season back end of last year. So September time, and I was developing a new serve, um, basically a, a top spin serve and into the wind. I just hit it as hard as physically possible. Um, and it was very effective. You know, I was making a lot of points in the game. So for me, it was worth it because I think in some instances it actually won us matches. Mm -hmm. um but the compromise was the next day I could not lift my arm um you know no matter what painkillers or anything I just you know be a couple of days of not being able to move my arm um so that was the sort of way up where I the adrenaline got me through the game but I knew full well that I was going to have three or four days of not being able to move my arm and yes the serve looks great and it looks good when you're there and people are going oh my god like what have you done with the serve and I'm going oh yeah no it's been really good but in the back of my head I'm thinking is is it worth it and then I'm like yeah we won the games it's it's totally worth it but it is tough because I know I will have that for as long as I play volleyball I think if I if I stopped I'd be fine um but I know full well that it's going to be another couple of years of playing so it's just one of those things that you just have to manage and that's why I do the best I can day to day to manage it um, and keep it at bay but I know full well it's just I'm just going to have those days so it's like yourself I suppose you just the uncertainty but you just have to sort of get on with it unfortunately well yeah that's all we can do do you sorry do you um oh god I forgot what I was gonna say now <laughs> I was gonna say uh... Uh, oh yeah yeah sorry uh, do you consider those long-term implications that may arise now I mean you said there that um, if you stop playing tomorrow, you'd feel much better. You feel fine. But is there a risk that you could be doing long-term harm? Because in my case with my hip, there is a genuine risk that if I carry on causing damage and carry on causing inflammation, that I might have more chance of having need, need to have a full hip replacement when I'm older or need to have mm. more arthritic pain, perhaps more um issues when it comes to simple things like you know picking up your kids when you're older or you know going for walks on the beach all these sort of things could become a lot harder in the future do do you have those long-term issues potentially um i think with my specific injury not so much i think you know the hips are far more complex joint than the shoulder i mean they're both there's a lot going on in both of them but i think typically the hip because of the amount you know go too into it but the amounts of range and things that it has it's slightly different with the shoulder. I think I have these muscular and tendon issues um, yeah. that I think will will settle. I think I'll have an element of instability in the shoulder um, purely from the surgical point of view because um, they did quite a lot when they actually went in. But I think 
I love being active and I love keeping strong. So I think even if I stopped playing, I'll still be lifting and staying strong. So I think as long as I keep my shoulder strong, I think I'll be able to sort of, I'll be absolutely fine. I, I think, I mean, I might be proved wrong in a couple of years time, but um, I think, no, I think your hip situation, I mean, typically with, with hips, the arthritic side of things kicking in is probably the biggest concern with that, whereas it's way less likely in the, in the shoulder. Yeah, well, well, good. Um, so how do you manage your body on a day-to-day basis? You mentioned rolling. Um, are there any other techniques you use to try and keep yourself in tip-top working order? Um, so I think the main things, yeah, so stretching, rolling. Um, I use a, a massage gun as well. Um, I think as a whole, I, and that's one thing actually that lockdown really kicked off for me is I was making myself do a sort of 15, 20 minute sort of stretch routine each day. Um, and then just making sure I have a really good warm up um, when I'm actually doing my session. So at the moment, I'm obviously I'm in the gym, but I work gym four times a week and I've got a very good SNC coach that programs me. So um, I just make sure that I obviously adhere to everything he's saying. And then sometimes it's a little bit reactive. So the weather last week was horrendous, 40 mile an hour winds and torrential rain. So we couldn't actually train. So I was lifting in the gym, but I was getting a bit anxious about, you know, not doing the extra sessions. And so I went on a couple of 5k runs, which obviously the impacts from the ground, you know, my, my legs were sort of screaming at me. So um, I did a lot more stretching and rolling and, and using the massage gun after that. Um, but on the whole, no, I think stretching and rolling for me specifically, I think is what I find works. So I tend to sort of keep that up. And when it comes to actually being back, I usually foam roll twice a day before and after every gym session. And then sort of a couple times a week do my sort of stretch routines. And then when it comes to training competition, obviously, you know, naturally you'd have a warm up and a cool down anyway. Yeah. And I mean, it must be good for you with your therapy background because you can sort of diagnose yourself and you can, you can see areas that need more work and perhaps lay people like me don't necessarily have that ability to make those decisions always in the right way like I've always been a big stretcher well I haven't always been able to lie recently I've been a big stretcher <laughs> and a big roller but um but even then you don't know if you're necessarily rolling the right areas or you need to focus more on certain bits when you worked with um you didn't work with so you well you did you did work with I suppose in his role as a physio Ian Gatt who was a previous guest of mine um yes yeah so obviously he was a hand he's a hand and wrist specialist so as you mentioned before those sort of injuries you get from um uh, from obviously moving the volleyball and spiking the ball etc he must have a really important role there yeah yeah massively but I think I mean he I think he's further specialized now and that as he's gone into boxing okay. um so you're talking probably 10 years ago he was working with GB as a physio um just a generic musculoskeletal physio um obviously very very good you know you look at where he's at now and you sit watching a AJ fight and you see Gatman in the corner coming in the ring with the little iron thing and you're like ah um, <laughs> so it's very cool and obviously I'm very happy for him that you know he's doing really well and you know, very very knowledgeable and, and very successful but yeah I mean hands and wrists I think probably more so in boxing obviously um but yeah no he's a, he's a very good physio was he uh, was he still the Gatman back then yeah, so I mean, I only worked with him a little bit briefly because he, I was a little bit young for the era. He worked with a slightly older um, lot, but 
yeah from everything I was heard was Gatman and this Gatman and that and you know if you need you need something and you've hurt yourself you've got to see Gatman so that was you know he was Gatman for me before I even actually met him um so yeah <laughs> no, he is. great great stuff he's a good he's a good character um from our from our brief meeting yeah so so 2018 was probably a highlight uh, of but it was a highlight for you that fifth place following which you've changed your approach slightly so I see you've got a new partner um, but what else has changed overall in terms of your just your approach to the sport? Um, yeah, I think uh, a lot has changed. Um, obviously, number one being the partner change, um, getting more volleyball specific. I'm now playing with a six foot one blocker. So from a playing block defense point of view, it's brought a whole new of type of um, play that I need to sort of get involved with and also... She's a bit newer to the sport and a bit more inexperienced. So I've taken on a bit of a different role. Um, you know, I'm quite passive and I'm quite happy to sort of sit back and, and listen and let things go on. And um, that's not the role I can take now. I have to be a bit more of a leader, which is not a role I'm used to having. Um, so actually playing wise, it's a, it's a lot more going on now for me, which is interesting and exciting. I'm enjoying the sort of journey with, with Daisy at the moment. She's made some amazing progressions um we actually went out to brazil in january 2019 that was our first sort of meet and train together see if we get on and it went really well um came back she'd been there for like three months we trained in london for a couple of weeks and obviously lockdown happened so um we didn't see each other and she didn't touch a ball for like three months. So it was, it was not the season we'd planned. And like you said before about having those short-term goals, we had all these long-term goals Mm. building into Commonwealth prep, Commonwealth qualification, funding trials, which just had to keep working back from and, and kind of looking at what we could control. Um, So it's, it's been really tough from that point of view, because obviously I have, you know, it's very exciting um, teaming up with her and, you know, the progressions we've made in such a short space of time. I'm, I'm really excited for where we can go, um, but we're not going to test it. You know, we, we test it on the national tour and um, that was great to have just some competition, but, you know, realistically, we've got to be going out and playing internationally and she's not had that taste yet. Um and you know there's experiences and I think we've got um a funding trial in July all being well um so that's sort of been the long-term goal since we teamed up which now is a very very short-term goal because we've got four months to prep for a tournament where we could potentially win some funding that would try and help us qualify so um it's just being very day by day and planning you know each bit as we can staying fit and healthy and staying as ready as we can um and slightly different mindset of you know I'm used to training twice a day and I panic if I'm not training but actually stepping back from that and going it's okay like being a bit more relaxed to my approach and you know how much am I going to really lose I'm still training a lot um and you know like I said before taking that role on with her and just sort of working with her to see where she's going and what she needs from me um in order for us to be able to be in sort of absolute peak condition by July yeah and do you find that as obviously these competitions have gone by and we're looking at so by 2022 you'll be 31 30 31 yeah um 
So realistically, you've still got obviously years left. And I'm not putting the clock on you, but um, has your mindset changed slightly now knowing, you know, you haven't got an infinite number of medal chances to go? You might only have, I don't know, what is the average age for a volleyball player to call it a day? Well, actually, for, for beach volleyball, it's much later because obviously the less impact and, you know, physically, as long as you're staying fit and the older you are, the more experienced you are. And it's very much a game of experience. Um, so I'm probably hitting my peak or going into my peak right now. Um, so I probably, you know, if I wanted to, I could have another five years. Some of the best players in the world of, you know, 38, 39, three kids come back Four Kerry Welsh, three kids. I think she's like 40 and she's got four Olympic medals, three consecutive golds. So it's totally possible. Mm. Um, obviously that's different because that's their job you know I I don't know how much longer I've got left not from a point of view of like physically but it's a case of you know there's only so long you can put everything on hold you know life relationships houses you know all those things that um, you know I wouldn't swap them at all for you know the experiences I've had um, but you can't put it off forever um, and when you're not being paid to do it, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends are like, why, you know, why are you still doing it? You're paying for all this stuff. You're putting yourself through all this, you're putting all this work. And for me, it's totally worth it. But, you know, for a lot of people that aren't in that position and haven't experienced it, they don't get it. They don't understand why you would, you wouldn't be married by now. You wouldn't have had kids. You wouldn't have bought a house. Um, which again, like I said, it's not something, that's not something I want or I'm ready for yet. No. Um, so at the moment, I'm just playing it very year by year. Obviously, goal is 100% Birmingham. Um, and then it'll be very much just taking it probably year by year then and just seeing what opportunities are available and what's realistic and, you know, what I'm willing to sort of keep giving up, you know, once I'm that sort of age. Yeah, yes, yeah, so, no, that is tricky. And it's it's interesting because, like, like you mentioned, being a full-time professional athlete is very different to being a part-time athlete earning like you said very modest wages um from the sport and having to supplement that with other work so it becomes a very different equation when it comes to like raising a family or paying a mortgage and everything when you said you haven't got that large income like if you're earning very good money from your sport it's probably easier to have like a bit of maternity break and come back I mean, it's certainly not easy but it's easier but yeah for you it'll be a very different prospects but no, I agree at the moment just keep going just keep focusing on on the sport because that's uh you've only got so many years you can do that and I'm sure people who so I haven't been in that position but people have been in that position and they've walked away and from a sport at an early age probably um would probably tell you that there's so much left to achieve in the sport and you should focus on that um so yes I think we'll probably draw a line underneath your career there really certainly as a as a volleyball player one more question I do have though on the volleyball side of things is, and I haven't actually written a question. I've just written down on my piece of paper, beach volleyball is a inverted commas, sexy sport. Um, I'm not quite sure where I was going to go with that. <laughs> my, my point was, I think, um, it's a sport which over the recent years has gained a lot of publicity due to, um, due to the way it's marketed. So it's the women's side, Jamie does better than the men's side in this country when it comes to spectators. Um, you, let's just say you don't wear the most amount of clothes when you compete. Uh, and I'm sure there's some 
uh, reasons behind that. <laughs> I don't know if it's performance enhancing or not. I'm not an expert, uh, no. but um, it is interesting because it is a way where sports can grow and they can find a market. And they always say like all publicity is good publicity a little bit. And so I suppose my, my question to you really is, do you think this is a good way to grow a sport um, to, you know, gain people in regardless of whatever reasons, getting the sport growing that way is only a good thing. Um, and, and also I suppose, is there any conflict within the sport on that question? I think this is a really difficult question. Obviously, it's something we get all the time. As soon as you mention beach volleyball, eyes light up and it's like, oh, bikini. Um, but there's, there, I mean, there's, there's too many angles to it, to, to be honest, really, because if you think, you know, if you go on holiday, you know, as a female or a male and you're in 38 degrees, 90% humidity, would you wear skins, long sleeve tops? No, you'd be in boardies or budgies or a bikini um so obviously we wear the same things you know we're traveling to these countries where like i say it is you know china 38 degrees 90 percent humidity you're pouring with sweat you don't want to be covered in clothes you want to be as mobile as you possibly can be so from that point of view i actually wouldn't choose anything else um obviously there are rules um you know like the boys shorts have to be above the knee the girls um the beside the bikini bottoms can't be wider than two finger width you know there is a there is a, um, an actual measurement um so actually physically we're not allowed to wear anything different unless it's below a certain temperature so from that point of view we don't get a choice but equally if you gave me the choice i wouldn't play in anything else um and i think you know it kind of sums up more of the people asking the question i think um, because if we go to any other country, beach volleyball, you know, volleyball as a whole is, I think, Natwad, it used to be the third most played sport in the world. So you go away and the first thing, oh, my God, you're a beach volleyball player. And they just see you as a professional athlete. They don't see you as a girl in a bikini. It's yeah. only when you come to other countries and unfortunately England where we're slightly less educated on the sport itself, um, that that becomes the question and that becomes the draw. And unfortunately, that's probably going to continue to be the draw. So like you said, I think if it draws people in um, and then they might appreciate the sport, the athleticism in it, then I think, unfortunately, that's a sacrifice we're going to have to make. And I'd be a complete liar if I'd say if I said I hadn't used the fact that we're in bikinis, you know, as advertising. And, you know, it's a way to get people interested. Um, but I think there's a lot more to the sport. And, you know, I listened to um, an interview the other day. There's a um, number one team in the world of Canada. Um, Melissa Humana Perez is, is what the defender of that team and she got asked a similar question and the first answer she said was why aren't we talking about the fact that it's one of the only sports in the world where women and men are paid the same so you know there's there's lots of other things the sport is amazing and there's so many other things to it um, it is a sexy sport um, you know you've also got these really hot guys um that are in you know vests and, and shorts and that'd be my only thing I think that the guys get to wear vests and shorts and the girls are in you know sports bras and bikini bottoms so actually for me from a playing point of view I hand set the ball um, and obviously when you're sweating in these countries where your hands are wet you know guys have got their shirts and their shorts wipe their hands on whereas you know the girls we don't have a great deal of places to wipe them without looking suspect in photos so that's actually my only discrepancy with what we wear 
um, otherwise you know it's always going to remain a topic and I think women in sport and and that sort of conversation will happen forever I don't think we'll ever get away from that um, but I think you know trying to divert the attention like Melissa did to other parts of the sport and how people can get involved in those sorts of things I think hopefully more people start having those conversations rather than what we're wearing yeah no I think um I think it'd be good if for Birmingham you could try and blend in with the local environment a bit more uh I think she's wearing like a like a like a, a knitted jumper and like long corduroy trousers would be quite good for the beach volleyball yeah. um but yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah it's interesting because it's all about bringing people in and um I certainly didn't ask that question in a negative way at all uh no, it's no. just it's just interesting that I remember London 2012 being it being sort of major news and it was like you're right that the main headlines or at least the main photos were photos which there was a reason why they published them the way they did um but the, the side benefits from those news articles was the publicity the sport gained so yeah. i said it, it you you gain a lot from that publicity and even if necessarily the intentions of the newspapers aren't just to get publicity you kind of still get that as a side stream which is great and um but yeah, so there are several sports and, and i said i mean sexy in two ways i mean sexy a in terms of like you said aesthetically but also it's just it's quite a cool sport and there yeah, are a few of these. So we had Adam Haynes on a few weeks back, who is a bobsledder. I said a similar thing to him. It's a sport which is just known. It's very well known without being very well followed. So yeah. most people in the UK will probably know what beach volleyball is yeah. um, without being able to name yourself, for example, or name any beach volleyball person. Yeah. They will be able to They know the sport exists. And similar for yeah. bobsled, like no one no one really knows much about bobsled but you know it exists because yeah. it's kind of got that mystique and kind of coolness about it and yeah. um and so on i mean volleyball on the whole i went to, i was at Dunham in 2012 and i was olympic ambassador and we were handed a bunch of free tickets for various events and one of them was to go to the volleyball and i can honestly say it was probably one of the um as a as a spectator, one of the sporting highlights of my life. So we went to watch, I think it was Brazil versus USA, I think it was, who was being a two of the top top. I think it was it was men's yeah. and it was the two of the top top teams in the world. And this is indoor volleyball. And I remember it was done over an Earl's Court, um, obviously in London, and like the entire stadium, obviously it was all temporary seating. So it was all like really rickety. So they, they played um we will rock you several times and because the entire stadium was made out of like basically out of plastic when you hit your feet on the floor <laughs> the noise it made was incredible and you had like mexican waves going and it's such a yeah. small court but it's a small court but a big ball yeah which is interesting like you sort of say if there was like table tennis you'd be going against a small court but the ball's so small it's hard to follow or squash yeah. or even tennis but volleyball because it's that smallish court and all the spotlights are on that one area so you, you can see the whole court at once you're not looking around the football pitch you yeah. see everything happening at once on the volleyball court and that big ball you can follow around it's such an accessible sport for spectators um and the same goes to beach volleyball um, i haven't seen it live but i can imagine it being the same sort of sort of thing and it's a sport which 
has the potential to grow massively and it said it already is big around the world and there's so many countries that take volleyball really seriously but um it has potential to grow it's just about whether it can be marketed correctly and can be and can find its audience because there certainly is one for that sort of sport definitely i think if you look at like you said it's other countries like even with australia you know i think it was a five thousand seat stadium but you had in one corner like a, a makeshift beach hut um, and the guys in there were DJing, there was fireworks, they put stuff in the audience. And if you actually look at some of the um, Grand Slam tournaments, and it's probably a bit more, maybe 10,000 seats, but the same thing, they'll fire, you know, it's hot, they'll fire hoses and water, they'll put stuff in the crowd, there's music, the atmosphere in the stadiums, they like to get the crowd involved, they'll get them shouting, they'll get them cheering. The atmosphere is always amazing. And I think, again, with Australia, they did stats afterwards, and it was like the most sold ticket, the most filled event, there was never seats free. Um, and like you say, it's a smaller stadium. So yes, okay, it's easier to fill that. Um, but it was the place to be. And I think that's kind of a similar tack they want to take with Birmingham. They want to make it one of the spectacles because the environment it produces is, is great. And I love it just as much as a spectator as I do playing. Because even in Australia, the playing, you know, you have all these people shouting and all this stuff going on, but you don't hear it. You're so focused on what's going on. Like there could have been anything going on. I didn't hear it, but actually stepping back, you know, like watching the finals, the atmosphere is incredible. And I think it is a great sport. And, and hopefully Birmingham is a real opportunity for us to showcase that. Yeah. And in this country, I said it's strange. We're on the one hand, we're really accepting to all sports. And so when it comes to the Olympics, um, when Tokyo comes around, people will be talking about swimming and cycling and athletics and gymnastics and rowing. Everything will be discussed at the water cooler, so to speak. But in terms of properly embracing sports long-term, we're still very narrow-minded, I find. We still stick to football predominantly. Um, rugby's found its place. Cricket's got a place. But most other sports, you can, you barely get a few thousand for big games for sort of hockey and um, even these big rowing meets, unless it's like something like Henley and everyone's there having cocktails on the side in terms of actually spectators, you struggle to get people involved in these sports, yeah. which is a shame because people forget how big these sports are around the world and how much scope they have and the engagement they have. Um, okay, so so I think really sort of to finish, I just want to briefly touch on your life off the court. So we've we mentioned it a few times so far, your roles in terms of um, sort of sports therapy and stuff. But just tell us a little bit more about what you do when you're not playing. Yeah, so uh, I'm a sports therapist. So I work in a private physio clinic in Dorset. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, like I said, I only work part time. And I also have a part time job at Bournemouth University, but doing the same role. Um, everything, everything I do off the court is for the court if that makes sense so you know I'm working everything I do work-wise is to fund playing and I'm very fortunate with my boss he's amazing and very understanding with sort of my commitments um so that's probably half my week I've just recently uh, signed up to do my PT qualification so I just thought again you know we're talking short-term goals I wanted to sort of use this time this dead time at the moment to be productive uh, and long term, you know, health and fitness is, is a really big passion of mine. So I thought, get those qualifications done now. So at the moment, my, my life is I get up, I train, I come back, I study, I go to work, I go to the gym, I sleep, and then I repeat. That's pretty much. Um, I don't live near my family, unfortunately. So 
obviously I'm missing that at the moment um that's probably the biggest thing I'd say you know big thing off the court I like I'm very social I like to spend time with my family and friends and I miss my family a lot um so that would probably be the only thing that I would would add into that mix is I'd be with my family and my wonderful little nephew um <laughs> would be what I would like to be doing on some of the days but um no that's pretty much it really I just I work I train I lift and I study <laughs> Great. It's, it's, it's always great to see athletes that do have something away from the sport as well. And it's even better, I think, when that extra thing can benefit their sport as well. So athletes who educate themselves in, said in your case, injuries and recovery and that sort of sports therapy side of things. Um, it can only really be a positive, I think, to understand why you do things, not to say what you do or how you do it, but why you do it. And said, if you if you understand why you train the way you train and why you recover the way you recover, it can only really be a positive and has a, has a secondary effect of then providing you with a with a future after the sport finishes. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was the big thing, like being in a sport where I mean, there's not necessarily a massive future in it, and that from that point of view is yeah, always. I mean, the reason I got into sports therapy was just an interest in the body and sport. That's pretty much why I got into it. So it massively helps that. And even just like, you know, partners and, you know, Daisy and we're doing stuff in the gym and I'm probably a bit annoying really because I'm a bit of a, a technique Nazi, if I can even say that. Um, but yeah, I'm very big on like technique and I'll tell her and, you know, she texts me today about her Achilles and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help people um, where I can and if it helps educate others. Because I think, you know, for example, my shoulder, the whole reason I needed surgery is because I wasn't given the right information at the right time as a junior. Um, so trying to educate other people and, and give them ways to help themselves from that point of view, I think is one of the biggest things sort of going forward. And that's also really with the PT. I'm not looking to be a PT separately. I'm looking to be a PT or an SNC coach within a physio clinic. So I can be working with my clients and or athletes and and sort of go have that all encompassing holistic approach to them rather than you know looking at their injuries and then sending them off to their PT in a gym and not being able to monitor that so that's really sort of the direction I wanted to take with it so that when I if and when I stop playing I've got a bit more of a sort of multifaceted career going forward and it opens more doors potentially in the future yeah yeah fantastic and and yeah, so I've, I've always encouraged people to, rather than said, rather than just learn what or why you're doing things, sort of really understand the theory behind it. Particularly people who are sort of educated with a scientific background. And people come to me quite a lot, and they say, "Oh, what would you recommend for, um, you know, getting stronger or getting fitter? Or should I be eating this food? Should I be eating that food?" And I always go, you know, if you're in a position where you can understand scientific research then do your own research just read the paper so I remember like in the summer I started drinking quite a lot of beetroot juice because of the benefits it has on like cardiorespiratory effects and general um, endurance and I read like several research papers to find out oh you know it, in these studies it showed this increase it showed this increase showed these side effects and understood why I was doing it and the benefits of the nitrogen found in beetroot and benefits that has on your digestive system as well as your um, circulatory system so yeah so I understood exactly why I was doing what I was doing I, I always discourage people from just reading an article and going oh I should eat beetroot juice okay and then going away and doing it or 
I should go in. If I want to get bigger arms, I should do this exercise or I should do that. And you go, well, why don't you find out why that helps? Is it to do with isometric versus isotonic routines? Is it to do with more holds? Is it to do with higher volume? Find out why you're doing these things and then you can tailor your own routine to it. Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem at the moment is social media. Someone will be, oh, I should have this weight loss coffee or, you know, whatever it rubbish they're reading and they'll take it for gospel and they won't even look in you know even if you are interested in that actually googling you know the effects of what that could be and going oh this doesn't sound right but they just see it as an ad or someone they they value is promoting it and then they take that go away do it and it's just so many so much misinformation out there that I think it's really important for people to you know make sure they know their source of their information like you say if you have the time get educated about if it's something you're interested in or something you know you're putting into your body why wouldn't you want to know the actual reason or the information for doing that? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people are very conscious when it comes to use of drugs or medications, but they forget that everything you put into your body is a foreign substance. And therefore you should, you should always consider anything you're going to do. And there's lots of, um, there's lots of good things happening at the moment as a result of social media. Um, but they're not all so, you know, and some things have got good and bad points. So like a big one's intermittent fasting, which loads of people are going to get into at the moment. And there are some positives to that. I said, I've read lots of research. There's positives in terms of there are effects on sort of burning certain fats. There is benefits in terms of, um, I've read, I've read papers which suggest there's been a decrease in like colon cancer in people who have had prolonged periods of eating because you're having more of a rest period for your digestive system. Um, there's been, I think they've shown that in some cases, intermittent fasting can reduce the effects of diabetes. Um, and it does that by overall lowering your glucose levels and leads to better glycemic control, etc. Equally, there's lots of negatives to it. There's been cases of like, malnutrition there's been cases of um people and they're sometimes getting too much of a glucose release because they eat too much too quickly mm. um they don't yet know whether actually there's lots of negatives to having that much food in your system at once um etc so there's always good negatives but if you just read a an instagram post and then make life decisions based on that or what some celebrity does isn't really the way to do it if, you, if you're in a position where you can understand the research then you should do it and then make a make a make a judgment based on that the same way you would if someone said do you want to start an experimental new drug um you go well let me find out about it first before you start making big life decisions okay um so to finish we always have any other business which is a great chance for my guests to talk about anything they want from the world of sport or current affairs or the world on the whole does anything uh, spring to mind for you yeah i think the big thing for me i think you know one thing that's just even come up from this conversation is volleyball and its lack of awareness. So I think the big thing for me is like, how can people get involved and why should they get involved? Because obviously I'm very passionate about my sport and I love my sport. And I think one of the biggest thing I've kind of realized over the years from being a player and being a coach is it's probably one of the most sport, most difficult sports to learn. And it's not until you step back from it and you coach beginners or, you know, you remember how you started that it involves so many different things. And even, you know, if you think, you know, at school, for example, you've got teachers with a group of 30 kids, go play football. Here's a ball. You can kick a ball in a circle. You can shoot in a goal. 
foot rugby, you can pass the ball, you can kick it. Basketball, you shoot in a hoop. Netball, you shoot in a hoop. Hockey, you can hit balls to each other. Tennis, you know, you don't have to be good, but you can hit a ball to each other. But with volleyball, when you start, they do like mini volleyball. So one, the ball's different, the net's different, the court's different. You play two on two, three on three, four on four, and you build it up and they teach you to like catch and throw and you sort of build it in because the skills are too difficult for them to learn when actually yeah. none of those skills are remotely close to actually playing volleyball. So if you look at other sports and the comparison of the skills, the skills are the same, but the execution and skill level is much higher. But with volleyball, I think it's, a very complex sport and it's it's a sport that you know you can be quite disheartened that when you first start it but when I first started for example I hated it I wasn't very good and if I'd have carried on with that theme I just would have given up and I wouldn't be where I am now from a point of view of volleyball or career um, so I think you know getting people more aware of the sport and and you know be willing and do a good job with grassroots and trying to get people involved nowadays there's clubs everywhere um, there's loads of clubs in London you know we've got a really big club here um, and they always look at involving everybody so from kids to adults to beginners so it doesn't matter you're never too old to get involved and it's a really fun sport a lot of people will say to me oh yeah we see nets at the beach all the time like are we allowed to use them and we always say of course like as long as we're not there like just get a ball and you know have a knockabout in the net it's a good sport to play with the family and friends and you know, guys like to go to the beach, have a couple of beers and knock a volleyball around. Um, so I kind of just my big thing would be to urge people to sort of, you know, try something new. And especially at the moment, like we were saying at the start of doing something different and just trying something new. And I think it's a really, a really great sport to get involved in. It's good fun. You're outside, you're on the beach, hopefully generally in the sun, in the warm, um, minus last week. Um, but yeah just like look online and volleyball they've got a good website and, and find your closest club or you know find ways to get involved try something new um, yeah so that'd be my big thing really just sort of trying to encourage people to sort of look at it and get behind it a bit more and then hopefully be a bit more aware of what's going on when it comes to Birmingham great and I, I'm sure you must have come across there's a beach volleyball place in Crystal Palace up at the National Sports Centre which I uh, walk past quite a lot I live nearby there and that's um that's a good example of these sort of pop-up centers you're getting now these sort of beach volleyball places nowhere near a beach which is uh really fantastic for the sport to grow a couple of observations i had from my minor experience when i was younger playing a little bit of volleyball and pe and stuff is it's one of those sports where i think when you play a game it really helps if the people on the other side of the court can play um probably in a similar way to tennis and there's not many other sports really like that, but like if you serve the ball and it just hits the floor, then it's a really boring sport. Yeah, um, and I remember, remember like back in, <laughs> back in, uh, oh, you're very good at it. But when, um, when I did PE back at school, it was quite often, you know, the PE teacher would go, oh, we're going to play a game now. So just, you know, get in pairs either side of the net. And it'd be less like 10 minutes off, hit the ball up and it would either said hit the floor or it'd hit someone's wrist and ping off at a 90 degree angle or go behind their head or um just miss the court altogether so basically it just became just serving continuously like no rallies and it reminds me a little bit probably of tennis again if, if you can't return the ball tennis is a very boring sport and and so you're right i think it just takes maybe education maybe gain 
PE teachers up to speed and how to learn those skills and how to make that more enjoyable but it, it can be a very frustrating sport if if you can't play it you need, you need to have a certain level of yeah. knowledge for it to become fun which is um yeah. which is tricky i think and the other thing well, that's I'd absolutely say- true because even with us on training and you know we're not um we're not snobs and we're not elitist at all with you know who we train with we're grateful you know to train with anybody but it's the same sort of scenario when we train with people and if they can't get the ball back or you know you train with people who you don't normally train with and they're constantly breaking down the drill it's you know you're losing momentum nothing's kind of carrying on and it kind of yeah it's it's really tough you've got to sort of play at your level um I think as you get older and you get better you play at your level and you know you need to be competing with people at a similar level it's the only way that you'll get better because like you say the ball will not come back and as kids and that's why they start with the catch and throw because the ball isn't going to hit the ground but then it blows their mind because they're like three on three on a small court to then six on six on an eight by eight court um you're all swapping positions you're all running these plays and it's just like mind blown you know if you actually watch an indoor match there's so much going on you look at that to where you start a three on three with a small ball and catch and throw it's it's a huge disparity and there was there are programs in place and you know i know locally my old indoor coach used to go into schools as an actual volleyball coach not just a PE teacher i think it's quite a lot to expect PE teachers to then you know be an expert at everything um and we even you know some of us even have gone into schools and offered you know little mini clinics you know they get a bit more excited because they've got someone that actually plays coming in and and they love it but you guarantee it's not going to carry on so i think there's a lot of work to be done for us to be able to sort of carry on and maintain that but i think you know just everyone sort of getting involved and having a bit of fun especially in the summer you know it's a great sport um to have a knock around with and you know few beers on the beach whatever you want to do with it it's um I think just getting more people aware of what it is um I think is going to be big for the sport generally because then it'll become more common in schools and, and you know PE yeah. classes, extracurricular and it's about it's about when those people show natural talent pl- plucking them out and putting them into the right system because yeah. like I was sort of alluding to like a good example would be if you're a really good rugby player or you say you've got really fast feet or you're really fast wing or whatever and you score loads of tries it's still quite enjoyable without having the challenge so you just go oh, i'm just going to run and do a pass everyone and score and then i'll do it again sort of thing and that's still a really enjoyable experience for a young kid yeah. but said with volleyball it's like if the other team's rubbish you're not getting enough of the ball you just lose interest really quickly yeah. um and then especially when there are so many options in this country of other sports if you're not particularly find that one enjoyable and no one plucks you out and puts you into the right system, then you very quickly will find something else to do that's yeah. more stimulating to the danger. The other the other observation when it comes to beach volleyball, this is something which I'm sure they do do quite a lot of, but um, maybe they could continue to try and try and promote it, is one of those sports which, which can go to the people, um, which... It's something I think more sports should really capitalise on. So, so many sports still hold their major competitions in London and London's a very busy market. So, you know, we've got Wembley for football, we've got Twickenham for rugby, we've got Lords for cricket. Um, if you want to see a major sporting event, you haven't got to go very far. We've got the velodrome, we've got the Olympic pool. And there are so many sports which still hold major events in London. Um and but maybe some of these sports and I mentioned hockey with a similar approach before um 
but yeah, it would also go for someone like beach volleyball or volleyball in the whole. Why not hold, say, the volleyball championships in Newcastle, for example? Um, and I think you, you naturally, as a beach volleyball sport, are attracted more to the beaches, which is which is good because those places don't generally have Premier League football teams or major sporting events as much. But but yeah, it can become a sport when you know if you live in Grimsby there might not be much else to do, but you could go down and watch that with your friends and that can really help get A, people in those areas starting to watch. And then for you guys, it can really get a much bigger crowd and then you can grow a sport that way. So you can become the sport for, you know, we don't like those London types. They've got their football, they've got their rugby. Uh, we'll keep our volleyball or hockey or some of these minority sports. They really can. It's like, it frustrates me sometimes when you see, GB hockey are holding events in London and most of their games are still played in London. You think, well, people up north are crying out for major sport. Why not bring sport to them? Because you're you're fighting a very busy marketplace if you try and hold a big event in London because there's so much competition. And I think it's hard to please people though. We, 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 I say we, our domestic tour tried to do that because traditionally there was like six events a year and they tried to, you know, put them across. So there was one in Skegness, there was one in Great Yarmouth. Margate, Weymouth, Western Supermare. So they tried to move them around. But then people would moan because they wouldn't want to travel to them because a lot of us were from the south. So then they became more south-based and then you lost all of the the northern or midlands sort of teams that were participating. So they've tried to keep it, but they used to find that they you do like the midlands and north tournaments and people don't go. And then you do south tournaments and then you lose the north people. So it's it's difficult um but th- there are venues like sheffield um the gb program was was based there and they had the proper volleyball courts and they'd host games and stuff but again you've just got to get people there it's how do you get people there how do you get them interested enough to go and watch and that's mm. the big question that is a big question and that's the uh the question we're going to finish on so uh, just just finally i want to say thank you but before that can um where can people find you on social media uh so yeah main thing instagram uh my handle is jgrim02 great and um normally i'd ask when will you next be competing how can people come and see you play but obviously at the moment there probably isn't really an answer to that at some point to be confirmed but I'm, i suppose if they check out the social media they check out uh i'm sure uh, british volleyball and british beach volleyball's got websites and social yeah, media themselves yeah, and you can follow them and uh, they will provide you more information on upcoming events. So finally, yeah, just thanks so much for joining me. I really wish you all the luck for the next couple of years and hope you can achieve your ambition in Birmingham. And, and yeah, it's been lovely to meet you. No, thank you for having me. Great chat there with Jess. It's great to burst that bubble that all athletes live like pro footballers. Many top athletes, like Jess, have to balance their sporting life and their career. I want to thank Jess for her time of chatting with me. Make sure you go and check out her social media, which is at jgrim, so J-G-R-I-M-0-2, and also at hips underscore and underscore dips of a Z for details not only on Jess, but all of my past and future guests. This has been an eventful week, to say the least, for football here in Europe. Sunday, the news broke that a new European Super League would be formed featuring the big six football clubs from England and other clubs from around Europe 
This was widely protested, and less than 48 hours later, those plans disintegrated, like a biscuit and hot tea. There's no point discussing this further, since you can't turn your phone or TV on without seeing this story, but I think there is an important lesson to be learned about sports and commercialization. Sport has become a money-making industry, which is fine as long as that money has a positive effect on both society and for the sport itself. But other sports like rugby are very quickly becoming commercialised to their own extent. Rugby now, you have free replica shirts every year for every team. They're wearing a home kit, an away kit, a European kit. Kits are getting more expensive. Tickets are more expensive. They just released a new line shirt, which is £75 for the basic shirt. And also I've seen they've launched the Pro Kit, which is, which is quite normal nowadays. You get the standard kit and the Pro Kit. And the Pro Kit now has sort of fancier detailing. So it's got like green bits on the sleeve and the bits on the sleeve. Like it's very clever, cleverly marketed. So I think kids seeing the shirts on the shelf will want the Pro one because it's the one the players are wearing and it's got the same detailing, the same colouring. They're not, they're not like like-for-like replacements. Money can be great in sport, but the money and that investment comes with a lot of power, which can be very hard to retract after. More on this to follow for now, but please stay passionate, stay aware, and as always, most importantly, stay safe.